Welcome to Turning Season Podcast, your regular dose of active hope in this great turning toward life-honoring, life-sustaining ways of being human, bringing you deep conversations with people who are rising to their own unique roles in this worldwide movement. This show is for every one of you who's awake to our multiple crises, feels your love for life on earth, and is finding your way to participate in cultivating ways of life we can believe in, making a life-honoring present, even in the face of an uncertain future. I'm your host, Leilani Navar. I facilitate the work that reconnects. I practice acupuncture and dream work. I believe in the power of conversation, and I just love having these talks with people who are giving their hearts and minds and hands to the momentum of these shifts toward taking good care of the web of life. Today we get to hear from Ruby Daniels, the founder of Creasy Jane's Herbal Remedies. She grows medicinal herbs and makes Afro-Latin herbal remedies in West Virginia. Ruby has so much to tell us, and I'm excited to share that conversation with you in a minute here. But first, I hope you will join us on June 17th for an incredible free online event, the Great Turning Summit, hosted by School for the Great Turning. We have an amazing lineup of speakers, and this promises to be a day of deep learning, inspiration, a time where you can really orient to what's going on the passion we can feel in these times, and also the hopelessness and despair we can sometimes feel. Find some more clarity about what the great turning really is and how it's happening, and maybe even a little more clarity about how you are playing your own role or how you want to. The link to sign up for free is in the show notes at turningseason.com slash episode 34. We'll be hearing from beloved elders Joanna Macy and John Seed, from Gloire Mudakuza in Uganda, a freedom fighter in Iran, Reverend Vahisha Hassan, Ruth Miller of Native Movement, Pat McCabe, Woman Stands Shining, and Lila June Johnston. I'll be hosting a panel discussion on parenting in the Great Turning. We'll hear from musical artists Ma Muse and Lydia Violet and lots more. The summit is being live-streamed on June 17th, and then recordings will be free for 48 hours after the summit, so you can catch anything you missed. And then if you'd like to have lifetime access, you can purchase the recordings after that. We've been working hard and having a lot of fun producing this event, and I really can't wait to share it with you. You can sign up for free through the link in the show notes at turningseason.com episode 34 where you'll also find links to all the resources related to today's conversation with Ruby Daniels. A little more about Ruby. Again, she's the founder of Creasy Jane's Herbal Remedies, which she named after her great-grandmother, Creasy Jane Pack. She comes from a creative and inventive family who were enslaved in Virginia and moved to the southern coal fields of West Virginia to build a new life after emancipation. Ruby refers to her heritage as Afro-Latchin. She spent many childhood summers in the mountains of Raleigh County, West Virginia, with her great-aunt Ruby, her grandmother, and other wise women of the community, learning about herbal traditions, God, and the plants of the mountains. After earning her Master's of Science in Herbal Therapeutics, Ruby returned to West Virginia. Creasy Janes offers custom-made herbal teas and tinctures, herbal soaps, and other topical herbal remedies. All Ruby's herbal products are formulated with a combination of Appalachian herbal traditional remedies, science and research, and spirit. Ruby's mission is to change the narrative of African-American relationships to woodland botanicals and educate about the herbal traditions and practices African-Americans have had with plants and the forest. I connected with Ruby because she is on the board of directors at United Plant Savers and has spoken about protecting American ginseng from overharvesting. This conversation we had is full of stories. We talk about ginseng, about Ruby's research into how slaves in the region used herbal medicine, Ruby's experience as a black woman in her master's degree program and in the business of herbal medicine, her family's history and the forest and garden botanicals that are such a big part of her life. 
Here's Ruby Daniels. Welcome, Ruby. Thank you so much for coming to talk with me. Hello. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. So good to have you. I'm excited to jump in with these open sentences from the work that reconnects, which is how I like to begin these conversations to learn a little bit more about what's moving you, what lights you up. The first one is to invite you to finish this sentence, however it comes to you. Some things I love about being alive on earth are. The things I love about being alive on earth are right now looking outside at the mountains and everything waking up. All the plants are waking up, seeing the songbirds, just seeing uh, winter ending and um, all all my my forest botanicals are coming around right now. So that's kind of lighting me up to see the black cohosh and the Solomon seal and um, bee balm. All my little friends are just coming back, my catnip. So my cats are happy because they get some fresh catnip to to zone out on. So yeah. <laughs> Just watching the plants coming coming back. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks for naming the plants too. I can picture some of them showing up in their springtime sprouts. And the second open sentence takes us around from that first stop of gratitude into opening up to our pain for the world. And so you can finish this sentence when I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is? Currently, right now, the thing that's breaking my heart most is um, the United States attack on uh, what they call the story of slavery, the story of my ancestors, and the fact that they want to silence that, and um, they don't want to include that in when they teach history, that saddens me. Just being that, you know, my grandmother was the first person in my family that was not enslaved. And her father was a slave as a child. And I'm the first person that has my all my civil rights. So that kind of makes me sad, you know, that people would rather silence that part of history. Although horrible, I think that it needs to be talked about to rectify what has happened to African-Americans in the United States. So that's got me a little hot right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. That's, it's not just sad, right? I was hoping to hear more about your family's story, and maybe this is a good opening to share that if you'd like to. I know yes. it leads to your medicine. And yeah, please tell us. So um, my my grandmother is a shepherd, and she was originally a Crite. Her name was Fanny Crite. And her mother was Creasy Jane Pack. Creasy Jane Pack was a descendant of Henry Pack. So I'm in Raleigh County. So at one point in this time, this was Virginia. So most people know that West Virginia um, separated from Virginia during the Civil War. Um, so my the first ever documented will in this county was for my great-great-grandfather, Henry Pack. And he was the son of Samuel Pack. So my great-great-great-grandfather decided to write a will before he died to allow my great-great-grandfather to decide where he wanted to be a slave within the family. And if he wanted to go somewhere else, they would pay him. So, I mean, there is some, I guess, kindness there. But I feel if that's your child, he should have freed him. But that's a whole nother story. So he was a slave here. Henry Pack was a slave here, and then he moved to Pulaski, Virginia, and was um, it was basically his half brother and sister in law is who he was enslaved by. And then when the Civil War came along, he was freed and he had a farm, and I believe he had eight kids. One of them was Creasy Jane. She married um, William Kyle Crite, and William walked from Pulaski to this area of Stanford City and um, water property. William Crite got injured by the coal mines. So he had a brain injury. And he back then there wasn't a union and he was a coal cutter. So he had to come up with how to survive. And 
his cousin Alice had tragically burned up. So she gave him 70 acres in the area that I am now. He was willed that. And so he timbered some of the land. He had a, a golden delicious apple orchard. And then he had a restaurant on his land within this coal camp. It was a multiracial restaurant. So this is back in the early 1900s. Um, and my grandma worked there and they made pies. What people would call permaculture now, that's what my family was doing back then. They had, you know, chickens, orchards, pigs. Um, some people had cows um, and grew vegetables and then they sold it as food. And um, eventually he had seizures. Most of the boys or my great uncles were in the coal mines. Um, my grandma did some some domestic work for a while. Um, my Aunt Ruby went to school to become a barber. And next door to them was my grandfather's family, which are the shepherds. And the shepherds come from Buckingham County. So if you ever hear of Robert E. Lee and the last meal that he had at the Shepherd Taverns, we would be their Black children. Um, and so they, you know, so Sneed came here, um, during the civil war and he was my great, great grandfather. And so I live in the place that used to be the playground for the community. It's, and in the back of my house is my grandma's property that had been in my family's history forever. And so they kind of lived off the land, lived a simple life, you know, um, they had a, the church was originally across the street from my grandma's house, but they decided to put the dump in between these two black communities, which is Stanford City and Stanford. So it's and in between it is a dump. And so this community had been here from the late 1800s to the 1950s. And then they decided to put the Raleigh County dump here. And I guess the people were fighting it at first and they the church just miraculously burned up. So my Aunt Ruby took her land that she was deeded from her father when he passed and she donated it to the church. So, you know, so now I'm here in this place where my family were able to, I guess, celebrate their freedom and stay together, um, build a life. And so I feel like I'm an extension of them, just doing it in a different way, in a different time. So... Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Hope it wasn't a long story, but yeah, that's my story here. Oh, it's worth its full length. Thank you so much for telling <laughs> us the story. Yeah. And and how amazing that you get to be on that land. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I know you grew up in Maryland, but you would come and visit this place, it sounds like, and it's where you started learning about the plants. Yes. Yeah, so every summer my mother would send us down, my sister and I down here we would come on memorial day you know once spring would be here and my grandma always called it decoration day she never called it memorial day so we would come down and put flowers on the graves because that i mean it wasn't just for the soldiers it was for everybody in the family mm -hmm. and um so back then they buried people separately by race so there is a a Stanford cemetery uh, you go down the road, the first right is the white cemetery, and then you have to go around the bend, and that's the black cemetery, which is overgrown, which right now I've actually um, received a fellowship through the Black Storytellers, the National Black Storytellers Association, and so I took the funds that I received, and I'm paying somebody to clean it off, because that was something that my grandma made me remember where everybody was. Mm. She said, because she knew I would be the one that would come back and go into the woods because it's like basically a little forest. It's kind of, it's kind of cool. I wish there was room enough for me to go up there, but mm. like I have trees growing out of my ancestors. It's like wild, wild geraniums back there. I might find some ginseng when I'll clean it up. We'll see. Um, so, and that's where Creasy Jane, that's where my grandmother's parents are where my grandfather's father and grandparents are. Um, so I just feel like that's something since I've moved back, it has been strongly on my mind. So I finally was blessed with the funds to be able to have someone to help me 
uh, clean it up and put flowers on it this year. And it's not just my family, it's everybody up there, which I don't even know half the people, but I just feel at, that it would be, you know, to pay homage to this community. That's just part of the, the magic of <laughs> taking care of your ancestors and then they'll take care of you. So, so that's what, you know, I've been doing as of late. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's amazing. You're really, you are a story keeper. I mean, we just heard you remember the names of all these people going back generations and, and then attending to their graves and even seeing the plants and the trees that are coming up out of the earth. That's, that's really beautiful. And oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so I, now I'm feeling curious in a couple different directions. I'll tell you two things I'm thinking about. We can see where you want to go, but I have heard you talk about how it's still the legacy of this place being a, a community of coal miners and coal cutters is still there. Um, and you're taking care of people with your herbal remedies, lung health and things like that. And you also mentioned maybe you'll find some ginseng up there <laughs> as you clean up that area. And maybe these two questions intertwine, but for people who don't know yet about the idea of a plant sanctuary or the organization United Plant Savers, which is how I connected with you. Okay. What what you're doing there as far as tending to endangered plants and taking care of people with the herbal medicines? Yes. So as far as ginseng goes, you know, it's really popular since that that stupid show was on Discovery Channel and they were going ginseng and then pulling stuff out the woods. So uh, uh, if you can't hear from my tone, I hate people that <laughs> pick ginseng out of the woods. I'm like, leave them, you know. So ginseng takes about 10 years to grow to be able to sell. So if you can imagine if somebody strips a whole colony to sell it, it and say there are no seeds that are left by, then eventually it will never come back. So in my mind, if there is ginseng up in the graveyard, I will bring it down closer to my house and probably would never use it. Just let it grow. Um, because there are other plants that do the same thing that people would take ginseng for. So first off, that's that's that. Um, as far as the community, one, because as I mentioned, there's a dump here. There are also methane pumps. So methane pumps are not really good for your, <laughs> the air. <laughs> And so what I find surprising is that a lot of my plants and herbs that I grow work on the lungs because it's a lot of pollution from these methane plants. Also with coal, like black lung was a particular thing that I'm sure everyone in my family had. My grandfather was a coal miner. He had black lung. My grandmother was never a coal miner, but she had black lung and COPD. We never went in the mines at one time. So the going in the mines before they started doing mountaintop removal, they would go underground and then they would sometimes blow it up and then pick the coal out. Now they have machines that do it, which makes it finer particles. So it's not as many coal miners, but they're getting black lung faster. So say my grandfather would have black lung was diagnosed at like 60, where these men who are going to the coal mines now are like in their 40s and getting black lungs because it's polarizing the coal into finer particles. And it's still, you know, as, as we know, most coal mines don't really treat their coal miners very well mm -hmm. and have it as safe. So it's getting in their lungs really badly. So they're getting it faster and the benefits aren't as good, you know, as they used to be. So then there's that too. So I grow um, a lot of lung herbs and a lot of them are native. Like elecampane is an herb that looks like a sunflower is usually found along the rivers, but the roots are used for your lungs. Mullen is not a native plant, but it has naturalized and it's everywhere around here. Um, colt's foot grows in the woods. It's good for your lungs. Um, I grow hyssop and a lot of mints. Uh, peppermint. And I usually make teas for people. During COVID, I made a lot of sayings. Bone set was another good herb that I used during that time, which is native and it's antiviral. So I just like when COVID happened, people just called me online 
I mix them up a tea to support them during having COVID and I meet them at Walmart or come to their house or mail it to them and, you know, just go from there. And people call me for like insomnia or sleep issues. And it's a lot of plants like passion flower, um, skull cap, which is mad dog skull cap, which is a native version of skull cap. It's a mint and it's an adaptogen for your central nervous system. Ginseng is the same type of plant. It's an adaptogen. So it is a very powerful plant. I just don't like to use it unless it's like a super emergency, like leukemia, cancer, like something very serious. It wouldn't be because you have low energy. I would have another plan for that. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I didn't actually realize that there's coal mining going on currently, that there are younger people in current coal mm -hmm. mining there. So. Yeah, and it's um the the most surprising thing as far as coal mining in West Virginia is the mountaintop removals. I saw it and it was just like, and you wonder why tornadoes happen in Kentucky. Why was it so devastating? Because uh -huh. the mountains kind of shield us. You know, you never really heard of wind damage too much here, but with the cutting down of the woods and the trees, and with the removal of the mountain, that opens up a lot of things. Um, Weather-wise, I don't think they're really considering, you know, but I yeah. do think that has that had some effect on Kentucky with how things went down with them because of the mountaintop removal. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, yeah. So we have that. So, yeah, it's sad. But I think that's the nature of West Virginia. Historically, they removed timber from here because it's not any original forest I set except for up north in West Virginia. Like most of these have been timbered and in New York and these brownstones, you have these beautiful, you know, frames and, and staircases. Most of them came out of West Virginia. And a lot of people don't know that either. Mm. And so it's been a, a very big on extraction. Yeah. So I feel that sad because I feel that there are so many things that are here naturally because most of the state is mountains, that there could be an economy here if they would sustainably have like deal with the ramps, the ginseng, any of these forest botanicas that they use all over the world that are native here, if mm -hmm. they would invest in that, I think it could work for the people here who most of them already know about it. They go in the woods and like right now they're getting the morel mushrooms, which they call molly moochers. And I've, I've seen them on shops. Ramps just came up. I have in my yard. Afro-Latin people really don't. I've never met too many Afro-Latin people that eat ramps, but you know, because <laughs> they, they 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 like you sweat it out. You don't smell uh -huh. good. <laughs> so, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I do grow them. You know, I'm fire cider every year with them, but I don't really like cook a casserole or eat it as a stew. I would say more European and uh, Native American would eat ramps. As like in a stew or a casserole. And I'm not speaking for every black person in West Virginia, but my family, we never did ramps. So. Okay. But you got them in the garden there now, at least for the ciders. Yes, I have it. And because it also is at risk. So I have a friend that actually picks it and sells it. But when he has extras, I've asked him to give it to me or that he's not going to sell. And I just planted them in my yard. And They've come back every year, so, and I'm just letting them be, and the, the colony is spreading, so. So are you doing a combination of growing your medicines and wildcrafting, harvesting in these woods? I do not. Most of the time, I wild harvest in a way, like I may pull it from the woods, but then I'll put it in my yard. Uh -huh. And sometimes, like, I'm going through menopause right now, or pre-menopause, I'm starting to get hot flashes and I have black cohosh growing. I have not harvested, but these hot flashes are tempting me to make a tincture to help help me out with my hot flashes. So. <laughs> black cohosh is waving at you out there like, yeah, I can help like, you out. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, oh, but you, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. But if it gets too bad, I'm going to be like, all right, <laughs> I'm going to make it. Time a has come. <laughs> yeah, the time has come. Just take a little piece off of you. Um, but I... I have been 
like doing a lot of research on some herbs that were really important to African-Americans and some of the things are in the woods. So I'm probably going to go and like test out some of these barks and see, you know, how they work. Like, what was that? Why were they using it? How did it make me feel? And then, you know, go from there. Yeah, great. I So I learned from you, I, I didn't know this before, that it was punishable by death for slaves to use herbal medicines in Virginia. Yes, That's, right. Yeah. Is there more you would want to share about that history or what you, what you just said, you know, some herbs that were used, um, yeah. how you, how have you learned that? Well, at first, you know, some things were passed down from my grandmother and just like things that she would do. And then I was really interested in the slave narratives, which were interviews that were done by the library of Congress. in I think the twenties, thirties, forties, where they talked to ex-slaves and, you know, like through reading through it, some of them would talk about recipes or herbs that they would use. You know, um, they, a lot of them in the slave narratives, they talked about bone set. My grandma talked about it because she, um, during the Spanish influenza, African-Americans use bone set, which is um, antiviral. And then in school, you know, I just furthered it. Like, all right, like, how did we work with what we were doing? And then the other source that I've been using lately are from anthropology papers where they've been excavating um, slave quarters and doing tests on some of the remnants. I do feel like there might be a lot missing because, you know, plants decay over time. Um but that that was interesting. And there's a girl from Tennessee State. Her last name is Hamby. And I love this paper because she was saying some of the herbs were the same things that Native Americans or Caucasians would use. But she was saying how different the African Americans use them as opposed mm. to how these other cultures use them. So it would may even be a different part, you know, or, you know, like an example would be black walnut, you know, the halls, people make teas or tinctures with them to expel uh, parasites or worms where African-Americans used the green nut and rubbed it on like wean worm or itching areas. Hmm. And so in my mind, you know, because I don't have a slave to talk to about it, but my mind, I'm thinking they probably took something that wasn't worth any money. So if it was found, they wouldn't get in trouble. But it still had the same, you know, constituents and medicine in it. So it still, I, I suppose, worked. But you know what I mean? So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like even like reading the narratives, because most of the people who were writing were, were white, I feel like there may have been that black code of talking where they may not have shared everything right. or they might have shared things out of spite that weren't necessarily true. <laughs> so it's like trying to read in between it. Like I, I read one where the lady was like, yeah, we use pig feces and you eat that. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to use that recipe. <laughs> so, and, and even like Zora Neale Houston, she was talking about, um, by John Root. And in her book or her article, she was like, kind of like saying to white people, you should, you know, call on this spirit, which made no sense to me unless you, because Hi John is a root that Frederick Douglass used. He was getting, he wasn't a root person, but, you know, he had met this root doctor when he was a slave in Maryland. And, and the overseer was just beating him and just doing things to him. And the root doctor said, you know, get this root, put it in your pocket, everything's going to be fine. So he went and got the, the, the high John root. And he, I think Frederick Dunn said he beat the overseer's tail, which, you know, you should be dead after that. But the overseer started laughing and he said, I don't believe in roots, but after that, I believe in them. <laughs> huh. You know, so, and Dora Neil Houston was saying you should use it, but as I explain to people, I mean, you can use the root because it's man of earth. 
is the one that he used. But I don't think you should call on the spirit because that spirit was for what African-Americans used during slavery to protect them. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to work the same way as a white person if you call in that spirit. So, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so, I mean, it might, I don't know. It's kind of like having an answer mom. I'm like, I don't think you should, as a white person, have a, a, a mammy and call in that spirit because I'm sure she's not happy being yeah. that woman in the kitchen. You know what I mean? So I, I just feel like some things are, are for slaves or descendants of slaves. And some things are not. <laughs> yep. So. Yep. Yep. Wow. I I just have never heard most of these stories, this kind of lore. I'm thinking back to what you said at the beginning about, you know, not telling the whole story of history. Yeah. But how many, again, stories you're looking for and keeping and telling. And I hope that you keep doing that because we do need these stories and there's a lot of wisdom in there and warnings in there and good things for us to ask questions about and right. and medicine. I mean, there's there's medicine lore in there that you're finding. And, and so. it also, I think it makes it more sustainable too if you look at how slaves interacted with the plants because they didn't have the, I would say, and not all the not necessarily for every slave, but I feel like they didn't have the alcohol. So they had to do things that were quicker. They maybe didn't even have a fire to boil the water. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it it just broadens my thought on the application of herbs, you know, where most people are like, oh, you only use a mullein leaf. Why? Why can't you use the flower too? So as Mm -hmm. I've been doing, as an herbalist, I've made teas with the flower. Most people just wanted to use the tea, you know, and just use the leaves. And I'm like, no, I think the flower works just as well, you know, from my experience. So I yeah. think it, I think it expands how you look or work with the plants, you know. Yeah, I mean, and there there may be other times ahead where we need to be more. Yeah, able to be more flexible and adaptable with what parts of plants we're using and how we're being more efficient with them. Of course, we need to be sustainable with them now. Exactly. Or if say you don't want to use the root because that takes the whole plant away. What if you can just use the upper, the aerial parts and then makes that plant come back every year? You know, most people want to take echinacea with just the root, but I use the... um, Echinacea purpurea, and I grow it. And you can strictly use the aerial parts, and it has all the things that are immunodilators and great for pushing your immune system when you're sick. And then I have it coming up every year, which then is food for the hummingbirds and butterflies and all types of crazy looking bees I've never seen until I started growing. I'm like, green bees, where did they come from? Oh, wow. bees. And then the honeybees like them too. And so I feel like you know, to me, I'm like, well, I'm never going to dig these up. I'm going to, you know, let them keep doing their thing. (laughs) So. So I think it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're digging into some of this history that other people haven't really dug into. You're, you're going back into some archives and, and other records as, as a medicine maker. And I know you've talked about how there's there aren't a lot of African American voices in the herbal medicine industry. I'm I'm guessing in your master's degree program and or I guess the teachers who've been available to you within herbal medicine. So I'm curious what what you think about that and anything right. you want to share about that. Well, I would say in school it was still majority of Caucasian students. And you know all, most of my instructors, I had maybe one African-American instructor, but most of them were white. And one I actually ended up being on the board with, and she was my advisor in school. But what I found is that most of the time, they never reached out to the Black students for research papers. They never gave us the benefit of the doubt if we were late on our work, whereas, and 
I watched it, so I'm not saying, you know, this to be mean, but there was a, a young lady who took three semesters to finish her paper, but they let her extend um, her work. And I'm like, man, I had a computer problem and I had to retake that class because I couldn't get online. And so I found that they were not willing to give us the benefit of the doubt. Um, I had some teachers just not agree with what I said or felt that I shouldn't say it, but I said it anyway, cause I'm like, I'm paying for school. So I'm going to, I'm going to research what I want to research and I'm going to say what I want to say. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. And, um, sometimes, and I, one of the students was saying something about voodoo, like on one of our chats. And I was like, you're very disrespectful. I said, maybe you don't know, but that's actually a real religion that people practice that comes from Africa that's called Vudan. <laughs> and uh, I find it disrespectful what you're saying. It's not It's not a joke. It's what people believe in, similar to Christianity or Judaism. So, you know, I, and like after George Floyd, she had like emailed me and was like, I'm so sorry. And, and I appreciate that she did that, but it's just the fact that she did it. <laughs> It's just like, I feel like that sometimes people are invisible or or we as Black people are invisible to people. Our struggle is invisible because it removes a comfortability that they have. Mm -hmm. Because if they have to admit what goes on. Um, when we were in school, we went to a guy or, and I never forget this. It was uh, myself. And mostly, you know, older white women who, you know, are self-sustaining, wealthy, husbands have jobs, BMWs, you know. And so we went to Guy and they hire Mexicans every year to come in on a 350-acre farm to harvest the leaves. And so the guys, you know, you know, talking about, and we pay them minimal wage. And I'm like, that's not a lot because, you know, to harvest herbs is very intensive. Yeah. And then we said, and we let them grow their food. So to me and the guy from Africa and the girl who was Mexican, it was kind of offensive. I was like, ah, I'm never going to give them business again. Oh, man. <laughs> and um, so we're riding home with with uh, the classmate who I'm very cool with. And she was like, that is just so nice. They let them grow their food. And I was like, man, that sounds like slavery to me. <laughs> Sharecropping. I don't like it. And um, yeah. I have since met people that work there and they, you know, they said that that for that's just how they pay people. And I, I see it now, you know, having been in agricultural work, they do not pay that much to people to do agricultural work. So that there's a wrong right there. Um, but, you know, just like how I perceive that situation in comparison to someone from a different culture, it, 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 it was totally different. Like they couldn't even see it the way I would because of what my ancestral history. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, yep. And I've had conversation with several like people in academia, you know, like how do we get more African-Americans, you know, to be involved in research with agroforestry and, you know, herbal companies. I said, well, the issue is one, the opportunity to even open the door. Like if, for instance, one of my instructors, she, her name is mentioned all the time, you know, in these like APA and United Plants, so she would be good for this, this, and this. Um, but she's really not that good. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, you know, because they boost her up, she gets those openings. And I, like I was telling a dean from one of the, herbal schools, uh, agroforestry schools, I was like, I just want to seat at the table. You know, if you hear of an opportunity, like reach out to me because I don't have the same networking. You know, I've never been asked into those groups. This year, I, what, two years now I've been on United Plant Savers. They just asked me. But these things didn't happen until after George Floyd. I went to United Plant Savers in 2015. You mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm glad because I love their organization. I love what they do. I like participating, but the majority of the members were Caucasian. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, they, they're, they're trying. They're trying to expand. And most organizations are, but did a man have to get suffocated on national TV for 
that to have happened, to open that up, you know, and it, in some ways it feels like that is the, that is why, but for whatever reason, I'm going to take it, you know, take advantage of the situation and to um, have my voice heard and to show the greatness that I bring, even though it's not the typical narrative that you have, you know? So, I mean, it's, I think it's good because now people are, are like, oh, maybe Black people did know about herbs before they came here. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. I'm just <laughs> absorbing what you said here. I'm I'm not shocked, but I am I am sorry to hear that, you know, within your herbal education, these same patterns that yeah. play out in, you know, all other areas of education in the U.S. as well. But I just... Yeah, I'm sorry to hear the the stories of it in this realm too. And I mean, it's true. So a lot of people have made a different level of effort since George Floyd was killed and the conversation changed. Yeah, and I think I think the conversation has to to continue. Yeah. I think that if we don't talk, I mean, in my job, I have to go out to owners, you know, private landowners homes and you know as I tell my other co-workers you know to me if I see a confederate flag it makes me very uncomfortable and I would not want to go there by myself because I don't really know what this person really thinks of me maybe it's just they're being a rebel but in my mind what that confederacy means to me and my ancestors is a whole nother you know, they went to war and in their Articles of Confederacy, they mentioned slavery several times. Yeah. So for me, and to be in the state of West Virginia and see it is also like, really? Didn't y'all separate because of this? So, you know, but it's it's a lot around here. So yeah, I and I'm the only black person in my office that works for NRCS. I work for the federal government, USDA, uh-huh. National Resource Conservation Service. So I am the only person of color in my office, which I mean, I love all my coworkers. Very cool. Um, But like they probably never had to worry about that before or even think about it because they're they don't have the same situation that I have. So and like we'll we'll ride by places. I'm like, there's that darn flag. Lord. Yeah. (laughs) And so but we talk about it. So now they, you know have a different view of things that they may not have had mm-hmm, mm-hmm. before. So I, I think it's a good, I think it's good to have diversity and have different voices. It's not only good, it's, it's essential. <laughs> and, and it's, it's not just essential for everybody else. It's also, um, it's not okay that you have to look at that flag and, and not know if you're going to be safe walking up, up there. For not just because right. everybody else needs to hear your voice because that's just not okay. <laughs> yeah. And so, and that's why I'm like, like y'all, y'all going to go knock on that door. <laughs> I'll sit in the car till the coast is clear. I'm saying, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I appreciate you, you sharing your, your words on all of that very much. And I want to segue into this, this question that is very related to this. Um, okay. But is a more a more broad question about the times that we're in right now. So I, you know, I I use Joanna Macy's language a lot, and she mm-hmm. talked about how there's these three stories that people kind of tell about what's happening in our time. One is business as usual, and from an ecological standpoint, or even a medical standpoint, you know, we know what that looks like extraction and mining and industry and technological medicine. And culturally, we're talking about the system that brought us slavery and continues to bring us all the all the effects of patriarchy and white supremacy. So that's one story that continues to play out. And then there's another story that is getting more and more press, which is the idea that we're in the great unraveling. And everywhere you look, you can see everything's falling apart. Social collapses and crises and ecological crises. 
And then a third story about what's happening right now is that we're in the time of the great turning. And we are shifting ourselves towards a life-sustaining society, life-honoring, just, and a, a society that truly cares for all people and the more-than-human world. So I wanted to describe those three stories, and then I'm curious what you think about that idea, for one, and then also kind of where you find yourself in, in those three stories. Well, I definitely think probably all those things are going on right now. Um, I do believe that there, you know, I'm into astrology too. So we're getting ready to hit the age of Aquarius. I myself am an Aquarius. So we know we're like the universal logical humanitarians about the group. But everyone's been so selfish for the last 200, 300 years. So I think that things have to fall for people to become more one and more about the overall group of all, which I feel like is the great turkey. So I do feel that we're heading that, that direction. I think that people are still holding on <laughs> as hard as they can to the old ways. Um, and I think there's going to be more volatile situations um, happening where I am in at during this time, because I'm in West Virginia, I'm in, I'm in the mountains. I'm feeling it, but not as much because I'm in this stable mountain environment. Mm -hmm. And then we, we talk sometimes about the three dimensions of the great turning too, that as we're in this transition, that there's different types of actions and changes that make it happen. You know, and mm -hmm. one of those is is holding actions, which are, you know, you think of your typical protest type actions, things that we do to stop or slow down damage to each other, humans and more than human. And then there's the um, life-sustaining systems where we find ways to organize ourselves and grow our food and have fun and live our lives that are actually life-honoring and sustainable. And then the third dimension is shifts in consciousness and, and changes in the way we think about things so that we can actually keep a more life-sustaining society going. So to me, I see you participating in, in all three of these dimensions, you know, in, in protecting endangered plants, that's like a holding action. And in life-sustaining systems, you know, you're growing medicine, you're making medicine. We haven't gotten to talk about all the herbal products you make, but I do want to hear about that before we close too. Okay. And then shifts in consciousness, this whole conversation about stories, about history, about race, you know, these are all part of the shifts mm -hmm. in consciousness that we need. So um, yeah. Any, any thoughts on that? What do you think about those three dimensions? I, d I definitely think um, the holding part and I even think even holding on to old ways, you know, mm. we still, I mean, we've gone backwards. Like even if we look at women's health, I mean, yeah. a man telling a woman what to do with their body. And at the same time, the same groups of people that are crying about, you know, uh, pro-life are the same people that want to cut uh, food stamps and any type of assistance for people who are struggling. I think that, you know, COVID kind of woke people up and then it went backwards. You know, now they're like, no, no, you got to come into work. And, you know, it, it already changed. It already shifted. It's a lot of remote working now. But, you know, they want to keep going to the, back to the old ways, which then increases the amount of cars that are going to work, the amount of, you know, emissions. I mean, which then increases the amount of storms. I mean, like, is anybody looking at the storms that are going on right now? It's a lot of crazy weather. Even here in West Virginia, where we're in the mountains, we had 70 degree days in February. Mm. We had snow this week in May. <laughs> so, which is not unusual in West Virginia, but I'm just saying it's not normal. It's the, the we don't have spring anymore. We go from winter to summer. It's no like in between. Mm. So I feel like, a lot of people are starting to grow their own food, are wanting to live off the grid. I'm seeing that. But I'm also seeing a lot of people that just are holding on steadfast to old ways that are not necessarily working for the overall good of all. 
yeah. are not working for the overall good for the environment. Um, but all these tragedies are hitting people, which is maybe it's going to open people's mind mm-hmm. uh, to be open to the shift that has to happen. And then with the floods, you know, California and the drought, now the food, the food's already high. It's really getting ready to get higher because all those crops got messed up. Yeah. So either people are going to start growing their food or they're going to start supporting more locally. So that uh, stops all of the gas emissions from trucks traveling across the country. Like there has to be something done to, to um, stop all the damage to the climate. It's terrible. But if we don't do something soon, and I hate to be a naysayer, but it's, it looks like it's getting work. It doesn't look like inflation is going down anytime soon. So that's just my thought. So where I'm at, I'm in, I'm in it all, but I definitely think a turn is going to come, hopefully sooner than later, before true destruction has to happen. Yeah, I'm with you. And, and even in and amidst whatever destruction and big storms and hardships around being able to buy food and access food, even as all of these things are happening, that we, are, we can take part in some way in these turns and shifts. That need to happen. Yeah. Well, Ruby, I want to make sure to get to hear and everybody to get to hear about the medicines that you make and your your garden and your plants and what you have available for people to take good care of themselves with your plants. So please tell us about that. So um, I have a website. A lot of the things on my website, I I kind of keep it simple, like soaps and teas, um, body butters. I do herbal consults. So I send a form to clients and they tell me what their health goals and what they need support in, medications, sleep patterns, their medical history. And then I give suggestions on herbal allies that may be helpful for their goals And then I can either custom blend tinctures for them, teas, ointments, salves, or butters. Oh, I make bath bombs too. And shower steamers. I just started making those because my husband has allergies. And so I wanted to, I was trying to see if I could do something in the shower that would help to drain his nose and clean out, you know, all of the pollen. and. So it worked. He hasn't been sniffling as bad. Um, So what do I grow? I grow culinary herbs and I also grow medicinal herbs. So right now I have a little forest section of forest botanicals. And in that I have Solomon seals, wild geranium, black cohosh, blue cohosh. I have some hawthorn, which I have Washington hawthorn. So it has two purposes. One is to stop people from walking through my property that might take things from me because they have four (laughs) four inch thorns, but two, the flowers and the berries and the leaves are beneficial and helping with high blood pressure. So that's one. So it's like security and a source for me having Hawthorne. It's a generous tree. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, with the forest thorns. And I think we'll be comedic when, you know, they really get in and watch people come through. (laughs) Uh, So it will be comic relief for me as well. Maybe on uh, America's Funniest Video one day. Love these multi-purpose plants. (laughs) I have ramps. um, I have peonies and I just added some more. And I make soaps with them once a year. The house that I'm living in was my Sunday school teacher's house. So I spent a lot of time in this house as a little girl playing in the basement. She lived right behind my grandmother. And then when they got older, I would run between the two houses and bring them both food because they couldn't get around as good as they used to. And when my grandmother passed, her daughter came to the funeral. My grandma was 100 years old. And she asked me if I wanted this house. And that's how I ended up with this house. Wow. So... Yes. And, you know, my grandma was picky about who my mom or I could play with. So any of the Harvey people, I, they were good with my grandma. They, they were okay to play with. 
So I, I'm so her peonies have been in this garden since I was a little girl uh-huh. and they're still coming up. So I take the petals, infuse them in oil and make a soap with them every year. Oh. And so they'll they'll should be opening soon. And if you didn't know, ants are it takes ants to open the flowers. Mm, I so. didn't know that. Yeah. So, yeah. So the ants are, I was going to kill them. And then I found that out and I was like, <laughs> all right, yes, I need you to stay. <laughs> I'm at it. And um, so, yeah, so they do that. So I do, I have those as well. I have skull cap growing, lemon balm, echinacea, bee balm, which is lovely. And then I do like vegetables every year. I do three sisters and a cousin. So three sisters and a cousin is a, the traditional Native American form of growing corn with pole beans and squash or cucumbers or melons. Um, but I call it a cousin because I add black eyed peas and I let them trellis up the, up the oh, cool. corn. So, uh, so I do that every year. And I, of course I rotate it. And then where I grew the corn the year before, I put herbs. So um, I have hyssop as well. Spearmint, which was not on purpose. It snuck in with my uh, (laughs) lemon balm, but that's fine because I make soaps with spearmint and I have peppermint, which is on purpose. I put it on like by the house because it keeps mosquitoes away and I love the way it tastes. Um, Then I have the Ella campaign and uh, oh, lovage, which is cutting celery. Thyme, rosemary, sage. I grow loofah squash, uh, sunflowers every year. Um, and then across the street um, from my house, I'm planting trees. Oh, and I grow cayenne peppers because I make um, a salve with cayenne pepper and prickly ash, wintergreen, some meadow sweet, and it helps with like aches and pains that I get because I'm out of shape and I have to walk up hills and because my day job I survey like livestock pipelines and Uh, it's not flat here so you're always walking uphill and I'm like I am old and pitiful so (laughs) so I I I rub it on my legs good thing we have those herbal allies huh (laughs) yes exactly uh, well, th- that's so beautiful. I know all the gardeners and herbalists listening are enjoying picturing along with me the the riches you have there. Maybe we can include some garden pictures with this yeah, episode too. I can, yeah, I can definitely do that. I have That'd be a, great. Yeah, so it, it's been, um, oh, and I have marshmallow as well. Not the candy, the actual <laughs> plant, um, which... The leaves and the flowers are edible. So before I started working for the federal government, I would sell herbs and vegetables. I would do turnips and radishes, lettuce and cabbage. And then some of the herbs I dry and make teas. And I was selling to restaurants. And then when COVID happened, you know, everything changed. So, oh, and I grew creasy greens, which are. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, and. Here, I don't know if you know, we eat poke salad here. Um, so it comes from the poke herb, which is kind of toxic. So um, traditionally, up until the stalk turns red on the poke, you can eat the greens. And so you'll cook the greens and you'll dump the water three times as it's cooking to take away some of the toxicity out of the plant. But my family would mix poke and creasy greens together and that's how they would eat them. And, you know, that's a, I guess, a poor man's greens, but most of the people around here, that's when it, you know, in the wintertime, those are the first greens that come up. And so a lot of people in Appalachia eat that poke salad. <laughs> so. Well, one day I got to try it. I looked up Creasy Greens after reading about it on your website because I'm in California. I've never had Creasy Greens, but oh, I saw yeah. some, I saw some seeds and I thought, I wonder if we all grow some Creasy Greens. And and they're really spicy. They have like a spicy thing to them, but I um did microgreens uh-huh. with the Creasy Greens and they were really good. And uh restaurants that I sold to, she was making chimichurri sauce with them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, try it in a microgreen. They're super easy to grow. You just put, you know, get the tray, put a trash bag on, let them sprout and then open them 
get them big and then cut them. Boom. Easy. Oh, Do it on your it. porch. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Practical tip for everybody here. In yes. Life. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ruby, is there is there anything else? I will I will definitely be linking to your website and sharing those okay. garden photos. But is there anything else on your mind just from what we've been talking about or anything even that hasn't come up that you would like to share before we close? Um, only thing I like to share is that I feel like the forest doesn't know any race and that every race can appreciate the mountains and the forest. So I encourage anyone and everyone to go out and see the beauty that's in the forest and also understand that everybody can love it. Yes, I'm with you there. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. And thanks for your time and the conversation and for growing medicines and taking care of people and everything you do. Yeah, well, thank you for giving me a time to share my my voice and opinion in this world. I thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit the show notes at turningseason.com slash episode 34 for links to Ruby's website, photos from her garden, and the research sources she mentioned, the slave narratives, and the dissertation about archaeological and historical research into African-American herbal medicine. You'll also find the link to sign up for free for the Great Turning Summit. If you've been enjoying this podcast, I think you will absolutely love the summit. It could be a life-changing day. All right, I'll be back on the full moon in July. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part.